Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome to episode 65. This time, Pippin and I will be talking about what we've been up to, and we'll be covering some of the articles we've recently written and kind of going into detail uh, on some of those topics. But first... I registered my first ever domain name in 1999, 17 years ago. Back then, there was one place to register domain names, a company called Network Solutions. Many of you probably already know this, but did you know that Network Solutions also has a WordPress hosting platform? They do. It's called Secure WordPress. It's a managed WordPress hosting platform with an emphasis on security. They automatically keep WordPress core and your themes and plugins up to date. They have daily backups. They provide malware scanning and removal. And they put your site behind a data center class firewall to protect against zero day hacks and DDoS attacks. They have expert tech support available 24 seven via chat and phone. Network Solutions takes care of keeping your site locked down and up to date so you can focus on your business. Visit getnetsol.com slash apply filters today to get started. That's getnetsol, N-E-T-S-O-L dot com slash apply filters. And now back to the show. Okay, Pippin, what have you been up to, man? Well, uh, once again, kind of like just about every other week, we've got a couple of plugin updates that went out. This week was in the Restricted Content Pro land. We pushed out Restricted Content Pro 2.6, which I believe I mentioned we had uh, released the beta in last episode. And so that update went live a few days ago. Uh, and so far, it's been a pretty smooth release. We have pushed a couple of very, very minor point releases since then, just to fix a couple of small issues. Uh, But this is one of the big updates that we've been working on for about four or five months now. And we're pretty excited to get it out. It's got, it doesn't have a ton of new user facing features, but it has a lot of improvements behind the scenes that in the long run will make a very uh, significant difference. So a couple of the, the main things that we did is we rebuilt the user interface for how content restriction settings are set up on posts and pages. So like if you go to, let's say that you write a tutorial or you write a blog post and you want to restrict that to paid subscribers, there's an interface on the edit screen for the post and how you do that. It's always been a little bit of a confusing interface. It's never been super smooth. Uh, And some of that is just because as the plugin developed over time, we added new features to it. We added new ways to restrict content. We just kind of piled them on. And anyway, so we decided to look at that interface, throw it all away and rebuild it from scratch uh, with what we thought was a new, much better interface, which in the long run will hopefully do two things primarily. Number one, it will uh, reduce friction for new users, make it more intuitive for them to set up the plugin for the first time. And as most people are familiar with, the first impression that somebody has of a product, of a person, of a thing, has a very long lasting impact on their long-term opinion of it. And so this being one of the very first parts of the plugin that users interact with, we felt it was very, very important that we give it some more attention. So you read on the UI, what's, what does the process look like? Like how do you guys iterate on 
like does someone do mock-ups or do you just start right away with code or how does how does it work so there's a there's a few different ways that we do it and there's no set in stone or standard way uh in this particular case um, my team member john and i john's the, the primary team member that works on research content pro uh, he actually flew into Kansas a few weeks ago, and we spent a week working together on site. And one of our goals was to come up with this new UI while we were both uh, in the same place. Whoa, you were in person. So you, what did you do? Like used a chalkboard or you went old school or something? Uh, no, we, we did it a little bit differently. He was sitting on his computer, I was sitting on mine, and I put together a quick proposal, like actually just like coding up an HTML mock-up. Said, hey, John, take a look. What do you think? Then give some suggestions, make some tweaks, and then repeat that throughout the day. Uh, and then once we had kind of put together a what we felt was a decent UI, we then sent that off to some of our other team members who were not even necessarily involved with Restricted Content Pro, but are familiar with it. And so they were kind of our, our test users, our test case to see, what do you think of this UI? Does this make sense to you? Okay, now, we sent it to somebody else who was very familiar with the old UI and said, now, does this make sense? Is this an improvement? Uh, and we'd spend about three or four weeks doing that. So hopefully it will, in the long run, will turn out to be a positive. We think it will. The second goal is that if you make users happier, you give them a better experience from the, from the get-go, not only are they more likely to be long-term customers, they're also going to open less support tickets. And so one of the number one support tickets that we would get prior to, to the 2.6 release uh, a customer would come to us and say, this content that I've restricted is still accessible to non-subscribers. What's going on? And in almost every instance, it was due to the restriction settings being configured in, 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 incorrectly. And we decided that the fact that this happens all the time is not user error. It's a product error, and we need to fix that. And so that was part of the goal as well. A couple of other things that we added to it was is just some polishing things like making the the whole admin area fully responsive adding a few additional features to some of the payment gateways for example like stripe checkout which is that the modal window that stripe offers uh, it has some really nice integrations with bitcoin and a couple other payment processors like bank transfers and alipay alipay being the number one payment processor in china so we added support for those or we specifically we added support for alipay uh, and then some other refinements. And then there was also some improvements uh, behind the scenes, three primarily, one being we added metadata to subscription levels and payment records, which is something that we've needed for a long time, primarily at the subscription levels, because let, let's say, for example, Affiliate WP has an integration with Restrict Content Pro. And one of the things that site owners want to do a lot of the time is to set up custom commission rates on different subscription levels. So you can say the gold level, anybody that an affiliate refers to the gold level gets 20%. Anybody that you refer to the silver level, you get a 10% commission, et cetera. And prior to 2.6, we didn't have any good way for other plugins to store metadata on subscription levels. So you had to kind of figure out your own way to do it, store them in the WP options table or come up with something else. And so we've introduced metadata APIs for those two, which will make a lot easier for us to introduce new add-ons in the future. I'm curious how Restrict Content Pro integrates with easy digital downloads because it looks like Restrict Content Pro is pretty much an e-commerce system kind of on its own, right? Yes and no. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny because, and this happened entirely by accident, 
But we get that question a lot in both RCP and EDD support. And usually it's people coming and asking like, hey, how do they integrate? Because they the natural assumption that they are directly integrated with each other because they come from the same company. The, the truth of the matter is that they're actually completely independent platforms that just happen to be built by the same team now. They were both built to serve different purposes and those purposes have slowly kind of moved together to overlap a little bit. There are some very distinct differences. Uh, like for example, Restrict Content Pro, you would never sell products through it. You might sell access to one product, but probably not multiple products. And one of those reasons is that it's, uh, members are limited to one subscription. You don't have five subscriptions through Restrict Content Pro as a customer. You have one. What you sell needs to be within those confines. Right. I was kind of thinking like it might make sense to share like payment gateway stuff like like Stripe, like Stripe library or whatever, like the Stripe add-on, there's got to be like quite a bit of overlap in that. There definitely so, is. Yeah. Uh, there's feature overlap, there's library overlap, there's lots of overlap that there can be. Right now, we've chosen to keep them almost completely separate because they are distinct platforms and neither one of them requires the other and we want to keep it that way. What we're working to do is to make it a little bit more seamless. And so like if you if a site is running both of them, there's shared interfaces, there's some shared features, et cetera. Um, but that's a slow process. And right now it's pretty minimal. Right. Makes sense. My favorite feature in in 2.6 is not really a feature, but is a is a change. We used to have PDF invoices. So if a customer had a payment record, they could download a PDF invoice for that. We ripped it out. Um, or sort of, we replaced it with an HTML invoice. Have you ever looked at the size of PDF libraries? They're large. Monstrous. So one of the, the problems that we used to have a lot was uh, somebody would buy Restrict Content Pro and then they try to upload it to their site and they get an error that says the file size is too big because on tons of shared hosting, your maximum file size is one, two, three, or four megabytes. Because of the PDF libraries, the Restrict Content Pro file size unarchived was 12 megabytes. Once we removed the PDF libraries, now it's like 1.5 or less. And it's just because those PDF libraries are so enormous. And so we said, we're moving away from the PDF libraries. We'll move to HTML versions only, and we'll dramatically reduce our footprint. So right. that was very, I was very excited to have that finally done. So you've got a, um, a logo in the invoice that people can add, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. If people upload like a, just a regular GIF, ping, or whatever, those are generally 72 dots per inch when printed. So there should be like a hint there that they either have to upload like a much larger size and then you can like resize it to be smaller so that when it prints, it comes out, you know, clear and crisp. That's something I ran into, I That's think. That's an excellent point. Something yeah. I did not deserve. Yeah, yeah. I think I ran into that when I was built, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. <laughs> when we were built, when I was building the invoices for our, uh, my, the web hosting company that I was running at that time. And uh, yeah, yeah. If you just print like a regular image off a web page, it comes out fuzzy because the, the dots per inch is very low for, for web. So makes sense. Yeah. So last thing that, that we've been doing uh, was also related to RCP, uh, and that was the, a new add-on, a new professional add-on that's available to the professional and ultimate license holders for dripped content. 
So one of our number one feature requests ever since 1.0 has been the ability to have dripped content. Uh, and so as of Tuesday, that is now available and we're pretty excited for it. So what, what is drip content exactly? Like what it? Sure. All right. So let's say that you have a membership website and somebody subscribes to your paid plan. They now get access to all of your content. Well, that usually works fine for most sites. It's a little overwhelming though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can, it can be overwhelming because suddenly you just have this massive library of content assuming it's a large site, but there's also some disadvantages to it. Let's, let's take my brother's website, for, for example. CGCookie.com is a large membership website, and when you buy a subscription, you get access to a whole bunch of courses. You get access to file downloads and things like that. A perpetual problem that CGCookie and every other large membership website faces are customers that come in, buy an account, download all the resources, copy all the courses and cancel their account. And then, and so they, oh, they've paid whatever the monthly fee is or the yearly fee and kept all of that content and then possibly redistribute it. So one of the ways that you get around this is drip content. So drip content is the idea that instead of getting immediate access to everything, you get access to stuff on a schedule. So you could, let's say that you could set it up on a category basis. And so you could have your categories, first month, second month, third month, fourth month, et cetera. So you subscribe to an account and in the first month, you get access to this category of content. Once you get into your second month, you get access to this content. And then on the third month, you get access to this content. So it's a way to de delay the access to the content based on when a customer registers. And it automatically fixes that problem of somebody subscribing, downloading everything and canceling. It does another thing and it fixes the problem, the overwhelming problem that you just mentioned at first. Let's say that you sell access to music lessons. Okay, if you are a beginner guitar player, you want to start at the basics, and then you might go to intermediate, and then you might go to advanced. That's not going to happen in one day. That's not going to happen in a week. It might happen in a couple of months. More likely, it's going to be a year or so. And so you could set it up so that the drip content basically follows a flow of when you should be working through these courses. So you could say, these are weekly courses. You should work through one lesson per week. And so once you subscribe, you get access to your first lesson. Next week, you get access to your second lesson, your third lesson, your fourth lesson as time progresses. And so it's a natural progression through the courses. Mm, I like would that. Be another good use case for drip content. You know, another thing that would, I would that might be neat is um, that if people could like mark a lesson as completed and then the next one would be sent to them, you know what oh, I mean? Oh, that would be cool. Cause then, or unlocked or whatever. Cause I, I find like, even with drip emails, like you, you see these all over the internet. Now you, you submit your email address and then they start sending you emails every day. And oftentimes you don't have time to read them. So they just kind of stack up in your inbox. Right. And, and then it just becomes overwhelming. And you're just like, screw this. I'm not, I'm not reading these. <laughs> cause, cause it's just like this huge daunting task. Uh, whereas, if like after I finished reading the email, I could click a button and it would cue the, and maybe send the next one to my email address or something. That would be, and for me, that would be better anyway. It wouldn't be so overwhelming. I think that is a feature in Drip. Um, I think you can pull that off uh, with their new features. So And get Drip. Get, get Drip.com, yeah. Get. Drip. Drip. Drip the app, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. 
So we're pretty excited to have both of those things done. They're um, two of the overall project of slowly rebuilding Research Content Pro into a full Premier membership plugin, and we're making progress. So we've got a few more coming in the next couple of weeks. So I'm sure uh, next episode I'll have something else for you that's RCP related. How about you? What have you guys been working on over there at Delicious Brains? Uh, well, we uh, just released version 1.6.1 of MigrateDB Pro. So just a minor release, but there's quite a few improvements in there in addition to bug fixes. We've done some adjustments uh, so that it works with WordPress 4.6, which is, I think, beta 3 right now. Specifically around shiny updates, the the new in-place updates system. So, Did yeah. you have to make changes so that your add-on updates or your pro version are affected I, or something? I think it's the pro version. I'm not actually even sure. I just read the change log. <laughs> hey, look, it's awesome when you're running a company and then you realize that you like you used to write every line of code that goes out, and then you used to review every line of code, and at a certain point. You don't have to, and at a certain point, you can't. That's great. Yeah, at a certain point, you're just reading the change logs like everyone else. <laughs> uh, What's no. new, Brad? I don't know. Let's read the change log. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah, um, and we did we did do this this strange little thing. I figure I should explain it. So, so you'll notice that our well, you may not notice, but our JavaScript files have version numbers in the name of the file now. So the, the version number is the version of the of the plugin. And the reason for that is that some people were not, their JavaScript was not updating when they would update the plugin. So usually the way that cache is busted is that WordPress adds a query string to the end of the JavaScript URL. And for some reason, uh, for some platforms, it wasn't act- that wasn't actually busting the cache. So we said we took it. A, let's take this a step further and and change the file names every time we build a new version of the of the product. And so hopefully that will. I can't imagine that's not going to fix the problems. <laughs> but but who knows? Um, have you have you guys ever run into that issue? All the time. Yeah. The query string that it appends. Um, to try to bust the cache works in some environments. I don't know. Okay, let me let's be fair. It works in most, most environments. Yeah, but there's definitely some where it doesn't work. And so, like in our recent in the RCP 2.6 release, and also in the EDD 2.6 release, we added tooltips. And we've had several reports from people saying uh, your tooltips are broken, and it's because the, the CSS file had not refreshed, uh, even though our CSS file has the EDD version number appended to it meaning that it should have busted the cache, but it simply didn't. And so then they they had to go in and bust the, the caches to get the new CSS to show up. So right. yes, see it all the time. If I was to guess what the problem was, I think if I remember right, Varnish by default ignores query strings when it does its caching. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty so, sure that was the okay, case. Okay, here's a question for you then. So if you're changing the version number on the files, that means the actual file name itself is changing. Yep. Are you doing anything to remove the old versions? Well, they should be removed when, like, like when WordPress updates the plugin, it should blow away the entire directory and then replace it with whatever's unzipped, right? I don't believe that's true. I believe it, uh, it 
does a merge. What? Really? I'm pretty sure it does a merge. <laughs> this is all news to me. <laughs> uh, hey, if anybody knows, ping us on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure it does. So the, re- the reason being that we used to have, so ED has moved files around quite a few times in our includes folders. And I remember a couple of distinct cases where, like, for example, we renamed one of our payment gateways. And I would log into a customer site who had updated from the old version to the new version, and they had both versions of the file in there, in the old version and the new one. Yeah, but they might have been doing something crazy. <laughs> no, like this is this is something that I, we would see a lot. Uh, that's weird, man, because I'm almost certain that it, it blows them away because I've... Uh, for our site, for deliciousbrains.com, we, we still manage the plugins in Git. So like when I need to update a plugin, I update it locally, commit it, and then push. When I do that, I see a bunch of deleted files, right? Okay. Well, you, you could be absolutely right. I'm almost certain. So anyways, we'll look into that. <laughs> uh, I'd like to know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. Anyways. I know it definitely used to be a merge. It may not be one anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that causing some problems, especially if there's security issues with a certain file. And right. Well, and the other thing that, I, that, that made me think about this is, let's say if they're using a CDN, is their CDN bandwidth being taken up by those old files? Obviously, they're tiny files, yeah. but it's more the principle than the... Yeah. yeah well, the so. CDN could very well you know, continue to serve the files because, you, I mean, if you updated the plugin, you'd still have to blow away your, your CDN cache. Ah, uh, yeah. So right. that's that's very likely that that the CDN would still serve the old files uh, indefinitely and, until you until you actually purged it, uh, assuming you have a, a time to live that's super long, uh, which which you should if you're using a CDN. What else? Uh, we've launched automatic renewals. Uh, How's that going so far? Uh, pretty good. We've got uh, last time I checked was like sixty five people have opted in. I think. Um, now, so you guys launched it. I assume all new purchases are automatic all, renewals. All new purchases, and then just recently, a couple of days ago, uh, I've launched emails. So ninety days before your license is to expire, I send an email that says something to the effect of, "You should consider." you know, enabling automatic renewals and then you don't have to wor- worry about missing out on your discount, right? Because if so you- I just I just logged into my Delicious Brains account and I see a really big, nice green notice at the top that says to enable auto renewals for your license, add a credit or debit, debit card or PayPal account. There Very you go. nice. There you go. Yeah, that's that's part of our user experience flow. So when you when you click through that email, you will automatically get logged into my account. So if you're not logged in, it'll just log you in and then you'll see that see that right at the top bright bright green <laughs> so so hopefully that that'll you know help people sign up it just just so that they don't you know miss out on on getting that discount because the way way it works for us is that uh we offer 30 percent off until your expiry date and then it drops to 20 percent off your your renewal uh after that ex- date so you know, we, we've had quite a few people just say, oh, I forgot, I totally missed it. Um, and they only get to 20%. So, Well, I just uh, went ahead and completed the auto-renewal process, and that was very smooth. Hmm. I like it. Awesome. Um, yeah. I like, the, I like the option that you guys have of turning them on or off. It's yes. very nice. 
Yes, and then yeah, you get to select. Uh, you can add as many payment types as you want, PayPal or Stripe or credit card, I guess. Yeah, we're pretty happy with it. It took you know quite a bit of effort. Right, because that's all custom built, right? Yeah, it's pretty much all custom. It is all custom built, yeah. You know, the, the beauty of it being custom built is that you can make that flow really, really nice. You know, any, as you know, being a product creator, there are always certain limitations that a product will have when you have to try to cater to a wider audience. Yes, and exactly. And so the fact that you guys can build this custom makes it, so you can build a very smooth, nice system. I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That is a big advantage of not not releasing this as a product. <laughs> At the same time, if anything breaks, guess who has to fix it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, on that note, for example, uh, our Stripe add-on for WooCommerce and our PayPal Express add-on for WooCommerce are a bit out of date because the to update those, so the code is heavily dependent on those add-ons, and so to update those add-ons, they've changed a bunch of things. So we have to change our custom code as well. So it's, you know, it's a hassle. So that's, I mean, that's what we've signed up for. <laughs> every time, every time these dependencies update and change a bunch of stuff, then we're creates a bunch more work for us. So that's that's the downside. But I knew that going in. So, anyways, should we move on? Uh, you wrote. You wrote a blog post titled The Monster That Is a Poor Database Schema or Thoughts on Resolving Poor Database Schema Designs. So what was it about? Well, the main premise is a poor database schema. Let's say that you build a product and you don't think about your schema very well, either because you just don't do it or because... You don't have the experience yet to tell you why you should have thought about the schema carefully. The point is that once you have a poor database schema for a product, especially if it is a larger product and you have a whole lot of data in it, resolving problems that stem from those poor early decisions can be very, very challenging, especially if you want to try and do it in a very, in a smooth, frictionless way. So for example, Easy Digital Downloads has a couple of things that we really, really hate in the database schema. And those are there because the plugin was originally built, number one, four years ago, and I knew significantly less then than I do now. And two, it was built to be a much simpler, much more minimal product than it is today. When originally building it, I had no plans for it to be what it is today. And so there were decisions made or perhaps decisions not made even in the very, very early days of ED that have now had long-term consequences. And so basically if you have these, some of the, if you have a poor database schema, it can be a monster that is always standing at your back. It's always kind of creeping in and ha- leaving its affects somewhere or other. So if you're trying to introduce a new feature, you want to you want to build uh, more efficient queries, you want to improve performance, whatever you want to do. If you have a database schema that is poorly structured or has certain aspects to it that are not great, uh, they can be difficult to get around. 
And so, so what are some examples of this in EDD, right? Sure. Uh, the main example is the fact that purchase records are stored as a post type in WP Post. Mm-hmm. Asinine <laughs> that they're that's where they're at. So what like, kind of what kind of problems has that caused recently? Um, the biggest the biggest problem that storing payment records in the post table creates, and I guarantee you this happens to WooCommerce, this happens to EDD, and it happens to anybody else who's dis- decided to store payment records there if they have achieved any kind of scale, and that is scaling. Scaling is brutal, primarily when it comes to trying to do reporting. Storing, storing data in the post table is fine. You can store millions and millions and millions of rows. And most of the time, WordPress will be okay as long as the host is okay. I mean, we know this for a fact. We know that WordPress.com, as an as a extreme example, has millions and millions and millions of rows in the post table, and it's fine. We know lots of sites that have millions of rows in the post table, and that's fine. It's not the amount of data that is inherently a problem. It is the way that you want to interact with that data. It is the kinds of queries that you want to run on that data. So payment records, for example, we want to be able to do queries to say, okay, what kind of, what are the earnings for the last month? What are the earnings for this time period? How many sales has this customer made? What, how many sales of this product product are there? How many sales are refunded? How many, what was the average refund rate in this time period? You want to be able to do queries like that. And the post table does not support those very well at all, with the primary reason being that a lot of that extra data that you need to store, let's say that it's the purchase total, the, maybe the customer associated or the product that was purchased or all of these other pieces of information are stored in post meta. So the moment that you want to start querying those, you have to start doing joins across the post and the post meta table. A few joins are usually not a problem. But when you start getting into really complex queries, you're looking at five, 10, who knows how many inner joins on, on post and post meta. Mm-hmm. And it makes things extremely inefficient. Yeah. Um, Even if you did have an optimal database schema, if you're a high traffic site or you're a site like, let's say Amazon or something, you, you're, you have <laughs> like records, like order records at that scale, like massive number. Maybe maybe that's an extreme example, but let's you know let's say you're 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 a pretty good size e-commerce store. Uh, you're probably not even going to run reports in production. You're probably going to have a like a slave database and have a reporting tool hooked up to that mm-hmm. and be running. Or you're you're pulling data out when it, when records are created so that you can put them into a reports. Yeah. System. Yeah, something like that, and that's. I mean, that, and that's because you don't want to affect the performance. I mean, reporting is kind of, it's taxing uh, anyways, right? But this, like what you're describing is just makes it even worse. Like it's a multiplier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The blog post just kind of says like, acknowledges that once you have a poor database schema, it's going to cause you problems. And then we went to looked at a few different angles of it. So one is, okay, why did, why did this happen? And one of the answers is it's quick and easy in the beginning. So when you're just starting out a project, sometimes you have no idea where that project is going to go. And so you just throw something together that works. Oh, and then you get a new feature. And so you build that on. And then you build that on. And sometimes things progress a little too quickly before you take the time to really plan out how you want to build it. It's one of the reasons why things like this happen. Um, and then it went in and looked at a few other things like, okay, how do you actually resolve this kind of problem? So let me, let me ask you this. 
what would happen if tomorrow we just said, we're going to rewrite EDD and we are going to put it inside of a custom table. We're going to rebuild the entire database schema and we're going to launch it tomorrow. And we'll just pretend that there's a magical upgrade routine that moves everything to the new schema. What's going to happen? Uh, everything's going to break, probably. <laughs> right. Well, and one of the main reasons being that EDD is, a, and just like many of the other uh, e-commerce plugins, has been built as a platform that other people build on top of. And so we have this database schema inside of the plugin that we use internally and that our add-ons build use. And we could build a new schema and we could update all of our plugins to use a new schema without a problem. The problem comes in is that we don't know how many of those 50,000 active websites have custom code running on them. We don't know how many other plugins are built by other people that are interacting with our database schema. We have no idea how many people's code we're gonna break if we change that schema. And that's where the real problem comes in. That's, how, that's why we, you can't escape a, a bad database schema easily. There's ways to get around it, but it's, it has to be a slow process. And that's where kind of the final point comes in and that's about building an a abstraction layer. Okay, since we're using the WP post and the post meta table, that means that we have helper functions provided by WordPress, get post meta, WP post, and a few other ones for pulling data in and out of the post and the post meta table. Those are great because they're super easy to use. They also mean that let's say that you write an EDD plugin and you wanna retrieve a little piece of metadata. And so you just call get post meta Guess what happens when we move that data and it's not in post meta anymore? More call breaks. And so the idea of an abstraction layer is that even if you depend on originally WordPress helper functions, you should make sure that you have your own classes and helper functions that wrap all of those so that you can change the internal storage of the data without affecting how that data is retrieved. Right. So instead of get post meta, you would call get download meta or get product meta or get right. or eat. I guess you would have to prefix it with EDD underscore mm -hmm. too. But yeah. Yeah. So like, for example, um, we we have payment records and they're stored in a post type of EDD payment. And you could use the WP post class or you could use get post meta to retrieve any of that metadata. But we don't want you to do that. We don't want anybody to do that. Instead, we want you to use our EDD payment class that has all of these different helper methods in it for getting the various pieces of metadata. So that way, if, if you're using EDD payment, we can change where the data lives behind the scenes and you'll never know. And that's, that's, that's the way that you have to resolve a poor database schema. Is number, first, you have to have that abstraction layer in place. Once you have the abstraction layer in place, then you can start moving away and moving to a better schema. This is really great advice for anyone who's early on building a WordPress product or, you know, or just thinking about it because I mean, now's the time to do this. <laughs> it's it's a lot don't, easier. Don't wait till later. Yeah. It's more work, but it's, it's a lot easier now than it will be later to, to change it. And because, so you're changing, you're adding this abstraction layer to EDD now, but you're going to have to wait a while. Oh yeah. Like we're gonna have to wait a year or more before we can really actually change anything. So like EDD payment, for example, was introduced in, shoot, I don't even know what version was introduced, 2.5, I think. I think it was two, two major versions ago. And we're only just now really seeing some add-on developers update their plugins with it. And 
And honestly, and that's even after, I mean, we blogged about it. We've reached out to a bunch of developers said, please use this, please update to it. Because the next thing that we want to do is move payment records to a custom table. We cannot move payment records to a custom table until we've gotten the majority of people updated to use the new abstraction layer. Right. Have you ever thought of like writing some kind of scanner or something <laughs> that, that people could run to, to like try to find you know, uses of things that you're deprecating before, before they update or? Uh, I don't think we would run it as a scanner for customers to do, um, mostly because I just don't think that's something that should be their responsibility. Our, our goal, if, if we do it right, is that, that every user and every customer will be able to update seamlessly without it ever being a problem. So I think what we would do instead is we will get a copy of every single EDD plugin that we are aware of and then we will we'll grep it and we'll find instances of Git post meta and things like that. And then we'll reach out to all the authors and say, hey, please, here's how you, how you need to update. Here's the guides on, on using the new abstraction layers. Please do it. Here's the time frame. We want to make this as smooth as possible. Sure. That makes sense. But I guess I was more referring to custom code, right? That's, that's oh, <laughs> right. That's, uh, <laughs> that's why I was saying like, like if you if you could like trigger background process that would just scan their their custom code, uh, like their theme their theme their active theme code and you know the plugins that they have active that that you don't recognize. Oh, I got uh, you. Uh, and just scan those for any hooks into your stuff and any anything that's deprecated, and then and then it could just just show up as a, like a little notice that says, hey. We've noticed you've got some code here that's probably not going to work. We've identified a potential problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's definitely. It's, uh, it's a lot possible. of work. I but... saw um, Jonathan Christopher of Search WP does that. Very yes. Well. Yeah, that's right. I, I just thought of it because uh, WP. I just saw WP Engine has a PHP seven scanner. Um, someone someone uh, told me that our that MigrateDB Pro is tripping up that scanner it's throwing we have a like, bug report for e2 yeah that. but here's the thing they're all the ones for migrate are um false positives uh we've already checked them because we're we're actually searching because we we do support other versions of php so we do need to check certain things in those other versions uh for example safe mode like we don't we don't support that's exactly what tripped ours up yeah so if you do an I and I get safe mode, then it, it'll trip that up. So, but it well, does, but it still works. It's not an actual issue, right? Yeah. It's false positive. Yeah, it's weird that 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 trips it up. That that should be that's that's well, not a critical issue. Is, is it, it's not looking at that full conditional. So I would assume you're doing something like if I and I get safe mode, or or if not I and I get safe mode, you can then set like the t set timeout or a couple of other options like that. Instead, what they're looking at is they're just seeing there's an instance of get safe mode being called. That's wrong, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's 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 a kind of a dumb scanner, but I mean, their tool says that it there are false positives. Hey, you no, no tools perfect. So no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Except maybe uh, I'm sure there's some out there. <laughs> Somebody's written a perfect tool, and it probably does one thing and one thing only. <laughs> yeah. Hello world. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my blog post on database schema. Uh, if you do anything with databases, go give it a read. Let me know what you think. We'll have a link in the show notes. 
I believe you wrote a blog post that got a whole lot of traction recently. Um, and it's something that I've been super adamant about. And that is that WordPress developers, I'll just read the title instead. Hey, WordPress developers, your clients should own their plugin licenses. Give us a rundown. Yep, they should. <laughs> End of story. No Wash my hands of it. <laughs> uh, no, so what I've found is that, you know, a developer will be working on a client site and they'll use their developer license. They'll just plug in their license key. And once the, uh, the site's delivered to the customer, they walk away and then to decide to become a surf instructor and stop developing. And they let all their license lapse. <laughs> and, and then the, the client can't update their plugins. So they, they leave their plugins kind of out of date. And then a security, they get hacked. Their site gets hacked because of a security vulnerability in the plugin that's been fixed, you know, a year ago. So that, I think that's my concern with developers using their licenses for, for clients is that the, the clients don't know about the, the license, right? They just, they, they think it's included with the site that, you know, they, they just don't know. So I, I, that's, that's kind of my beef with it. What, 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 is, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, first, uh, I ran into this issue firsthand Oh, I think two years ago, maybe was the first time that I ever encountered it. And it was basically that exact same scenario where we had a customer. Someone who, became a surf instructor. <laughs> I don't know if they did that, but uh, the, the, so there was a developer, they bought a bunch of licenses and then they used those on a client site or whatever, or, or on a series of sites. And then that client came to us later asking questions and looking for support. Not a problem. We're happy to support them. But we find out that all the license keys are expired or she doesn't have them or, or he doesn't have them. And they can't get hold of the developer anymore because they've gone AWOL. We basically have to say, I'm like, I'm sorry, there's not anything we can do unless we have a valid license from you. And unfortunately, the only way for us to look it up is to know where it's either know the website it's being used on, know the customer email address associated with it, or know the actual license keys. And if you don't have any of those, like, too bad. And it, and several times it's resulted in the client having to go and purchase a new license key for themselves because the one that they had or is expired and belongs to a different developer that they can't get in touch with. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of different variations of how that can play out, but it's a very real problem. I actually have an open support ticket right now with the exact same problem. Customer does not know their license key. They don't know the email address that it was purchased with. And their developers AWOL, but they would like help with an issue. And unfortunately, we have to do our own as, as a product owner, we have to do our due diligence and be very, be very firm about we can't help you if you don't have a license key because scaling is a problem. And so until we have a light until we can confirm a license, we can't really assist. And in order to confirm a license, we need to know that information. And they would not be in that situation if they had either bought their own license or the developer had transferred it to them. Right. Yeah. I do want to make it clear that I don't feel like WP Migrate DB Pro really fits into this category um, because it's a tool, it's a developer tool. If a developer walked away, the customer could just delete WP Migrate DB Pro and their site would work fine. It's really for plugins that are like 
you know, integrated into the functionality of the site itself that are, you know, if they deleted the plugin, the site would probably break or, or whatever. I think, I think uh, for any kind of like utility plugin that's, that can be deleted, maybe this isn't that important. It's definitely going to apply in certain cases, but it's not as prominent. Yeah, exactly. So I, I've considered uh, following Flywheel's example, which is that they allow you to create a link for your clients so that it, that'll bring them to the site and just give them a, a payment form and just to fill in their payment information and kind of all the rest is taken care of, like picking the license and filling in any other details that need to be filled in, like that's done for them. I really like that idea that that uh, developers could just give their clients a link to, to fill in their billing details. And I love that. So we, we've been... It's been on our to-do list for a long time, <laughs> but we we are we would love to to do that eventually. It's a really cool feature that kudos to anybody who can build that for their product or their service. But it is one of those that will almost always be a nice to have. Simply being that there's always higher, almost always higher priorities than, than something like that because it's it doesn't affect every customer. It affects one in a hundred or one in a thousand. But the unfortunate thing is that when it affects a customer it affects them really greatly. Yeah, exactly. And it's and, and like you were saying, it's not really fair to the plugin author either, right? Because cuz it puts us it puts us in a hard spot when when people come to us for help and they're just they have no idea like why we won't help them. Like they're a victim of of the circumstances. It's not their fault. Exactly. And, and you, you, I hate to, to, you know, tell those people like, well, you got to buy a license, you know, it's, it sucks. Um, so yeah, do it for us too. Yes, please. <laughs> Should we wrap it up? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. I think we're around getting close to an hour. So you guys don't want to listen to us that long. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I uh, guess I'll talk to you guys next time. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. You can check out the links to all the blog posts in the show notes.